Today on Against the Grain, the world seems in dismal shape and only set to get worse. And capitalism appears to be the only option, spinning us further and further out of control. But Danny Dorling argues that if you take the longer view, stepping back and looking at measures like the rate of economic growth and innovation, debt and population growth, and more, the world is actually slowing down. He argues that it augurs a transition out of capitalism to a more stable society. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Capitalism since its inception has been about dynamism, growth, technical innovation, and relentless change. But what if the drivers of capitalist growth are petering out? What if capitalism is decelerating and ebbing? So argues Danny Dorling in his book, Slowdown, The End of the Great Acceleration and Why It's Good for the Planet, the Economy, and Our Lives. Dorling is the Halford McKinder Professor of Geography at the University of Oxford. His many other books include The Equality Effect and Inequality and the 1%. When I spoke to Danny Dorling, we talked about the sense that the future is going to be a worse version of the present, more unequal, more authoritarian, and more ecologically devastated. Why, I asked him, did he think that this sense of the future might be misleading? Uh, There's several reasons why it may uh, be misleading. One is that for quite a long time, some people have thought this. You can go back to the 1960s when people were talking about the famines that were going to come in the 70s and, and how everything was going to fall apart then. And very often these predictions have been wrong. Uh, Another reason that they can be wrong is that these are things which are often felt in countries and places that are doing particularly badly, such as the United Kingdom and the United States, where you really can say that inequality is at a high it has not been at for 60, 70 years, where there is widespread poverty that is getting worse. But that is not the case in most of the rich world. In most of Europe, for instance, inequalities have been falling for a number of years. It varies country by country. But there isn't a single country in Europe where inequality is currently rising, as as I speak to you. And if you go outside of the rich world, you can get even better good news stories about what is happening. The lowest infant mortality rate the world has ever known is the one that children born this year are currently enjoying. So it's a question of perspective. It's where are you looking at it from? And also, are you saying the same story that your parents and even your grandparents said about things going to hell in a handcart when in fact they may not be? You argue that a change took place and that change happened at the end of the 1960s, beginning of the 1970s and all sorts of trends shifted at that point. And this is really a, a discussion about rates of growth and the deceleration of rates of growth. Before we get into the change that came and, and how, I wonder if you could talk about the society that you believe in the process of transitioning away from, this great acceleration. Can you describe what that is and when you would date its beginning? I would date the beginning from around about the 1650s uh, when René Descartes was standing on the dockside in Amsterdam and he wrote down that all around him was madness. Uh, Men, and it was in particular men, seemed to be only obsessed by money and by getting richer out of trade. Now this started in and around Amsterdam at that time and it spread across Europe, it spread out of Europe, the Europeans invaded and colonised the rest of the planet, and we spread our peoples but also our ideas, and we destroyed stable social systems around the entire globe. The population explosion 
the human population explosion from 1 billion to 2 billion and then up 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 to 8 now. That was all seeded uh, by that expansion globally. And initially it resulted in what looked like incredible economic progress. We, or some of us at least, appeared to be getting much richer. But the slowdown in it, in terms of innovation, you can actually begin to see in the 1930s. In terms of GDP growth, it was the 1950s that had the highest GDP growth after the Second World War. And then every decade, 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, then into this century, every decade had slower average GDP growth than the decade before. Population growth worldwide peaked in 1968, uh, with the global population increasing by 2.1% that year. And then it slowed down, and down and down and down, ever so steadily. So currently it's below 1% a year, and it's actually set globally to peak within the current century. Uh, for the first time ever in the history of our species, not caused by war, devastating disease or some some other terrible factor but simply because we are choosing to have fewer children so you can date the slowdown from the 1930s to 1950s the rate of slowdown is continuing just as fast as it has been for the last 200 years and the most ambitious claim i make in the book is that what we're seeing is a transition and it's a transition from this period of incredible change which we tend to think of as an era, but it's not an era, it was simply a change. We call it capitalism. We're seeing a transition from that to something that is new, something which is hopefully more stable, something which is very different to what we've been used to. So, in other words, as we're thinking about this, this is really uh, an argument about the advent of capitalism. And then, as you write in the book, a transition through it, maybe not ending with a bang, but with a whimper. I wanted to ask you, and we'll talk a lot more about that, but let's talk about technological innovation. Much of the self-promotion of capitalism is that it delivers the goods in terms of, of wealth and in terms of innovation, especially. How would you rate the rate of technological innovation in the period that you're looking at, let's just say from mid-century to the present. When I was at school in the 1970s, I had to learn a series of dates of various British inventions, uh, spinning jennies, various looms, uh, the generator, uh, that slows down steam engines in the Industrial Revolution and so on. If I could remember these dates and the men who'd invented all these things, then I would get a high mark in my history exam. What we didn't do, of course, is, is explain you know, why was so much cotton that actually coming uh, to England, to the mills of Manchester, to be turned into textiles. And it wasn't purely innovation or great technological advances. It was also slavery and the control of the market in India, so we could actually sell the textile somewhere. But there was an increase in innovation which came with more exploitation and more money. And first of all, uh, taking water power and then steam power, and then the really big one, electricity. Now, various attempts have been made to, to estimate what was the decade of the greatest innovation. And quite a few of those actually say the 1930s, even before the Second World War saw a peak of things being invented. In my lifetime, uh, the rate of innovation has really, really slowed down. I had a personal computer, uh, a ZX80, as a 12-year-old in 1980. When I went to university in the mid-1980s, we had email. Uh, we even had the equivalent of Zoom. We had video calls for the very first time. Had a mobile phone shortly after leaving university. I'm 55 years old now. Between being 18, 19 or 20, the number of actual innovations which have changed my life have been very few. My, my home is heated by the same kind of gas heater uh, that was used when I was a child. I'm using a window system uh, to talk to you 
uh, which is very similar to the Windows system that I had when I was 17 years old. We like to talk up innovation and of course universities every Friday they, they produce press releases about what the latest innovation uh, they have done but when you try to measure the rates of this the rates slow down you don't have a constant doubling of speed of computers we've had I think I document in the book at least four or if not five artificial intelligence revolutions where each one it was supposed to completely change our world and each one was really talking about pattern recognition and the, the ability to read number plates and now very cleverly translate languages and so on but it's pattern recognition it's not artificial intelligence uh, when I was young we were <laughs> promised if you think about Star Trek um, all kinds of things including being able to beam ourselves across places um, but we're still using bicycles which were an incredible innovation well, connected to that, connected to technology, we seem to swim in an ocean of data and information accelerated by the computer and associated technologies. And it's predicted that this ocean will only increase. Why do you believe that such predictions are not taking into account the slowdown of data? Well, I mean, we, we could have a enormous kind of, kind of garbage containers uh, of data in, in future. I mean, already for everybody on the planet, we are storing at least 8 billion pieces of information on average. Um, the vast majority of what we store is copies of other things that we store. Uh, it's not new or insightful information. I had a look at Wikipedia in the book. Wikipedia is a, a lovely example of something which was innovative, a collaborative encyclopedia. And you can look at, at the rate at which Wikipedia grew as people became infused and added articles to it. But of course, eventually Wikipedia slowed down. And it slowed down because there were fewer interesting things which required an entry that anybody would ever read. There is actually a limit to the amount of stuff, to the, to the amount of information. It will keep on increasing. We'll keep on discovering new things, knowledge will increase, we'll produce new songs, we'll write new books, we'll have new ideas. But we're not going to do this in some kind of exponential fashion, where it goes up and up and up more each year than the year before. Uh, there's no sign of that with Wikipedia, certainly. It's already slowing down. And I, I try to contrast this with changes in my grandfather's life. Uh, my grandfather was born when there were hardly any cars. He used to play football as a boy on the A1, the main road in England. They would play football because there were so few cars. He grew up at a time when there were many horses and not that many tractors in the field. He got to see his first aeroplane flying. He got to uh, hear about people landing on the moon. He had an incredible change in data and information. He had a, a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas hard copy bound that he absolutely worshipped because that was he had the information there on a shelf in his bedroom uh, that that world was a world which changed dramatically whereas my world our world the amount of information that I have access to now as compared to 10 years ago is not that much different Danny Dornling is my guest he's professor of geography at the University of Oxford and we're discussing his book, Slow Down, The End of the Great Acceleration and Why It's Good for the Planet, the Economy, and Our Lives. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You mentioned a bit earlier population growth, and, you know, with much fanfare, world population just passed 8 billion people. For decades, there have been dire predictions made about population bombs going off with catastrophic consequences for food and for the environment. Um, the Ehrlichs, the population bomb is one example in the late 60s. Yet the rate of population growth has been decelerating for a good while. Can you trace for us the trajectory of uh, global population growth and what are the factors that have led to it slowing down? The bomb went off in Europe 
16th, 17th century. It, it went off because the position of Europe changed. The, the so-called discovery of the Americas and the enormous amount of silver that could be plundered from the Americas and traded with China. The only thing China wanted from Europe was silver. We had nothing else of use to them and we didn't have silver before the Americas. That changed the position of Europe. It brought in wealth. And that wealth altered how people behaved. And one thing we did is we chucked those of us who were rich, we chucked the poor off the land. We enclosed the land to try to make it more efficient, to make more money, because we had got into the idea of making money. And we forced the poor landless to wander around France and England and into cities. Now, those villages that their parents had lived in had had stable social structures for centuries. You didn't marry until you could marry. You couldn't marry until there was a home available to you. This reduced the number of children that you had. Break that down and you see an increase uh, in children. Uh, not actually an improvement in child health, not a reduction in the number of children who died, just so many more children being born that we had a population explosion in Europe. We could deal with that because there was the rest of the world that we could ship people out to. The US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, in, in the case of England. Um, but as we walked into every other country, the UK alone invaded 90% of the current 193 members of the UN. As we walked into every other country, the similar systems that had existed there, which had kept population growth fairly stable, uh, were catastrophically pulled apart. And so population bombs went off everywhere and the population grew and grew and grew. Uh, the slowdown began again in Europe it was helped by contraceptives, it was helped by the discovery of the condom, or at least its publicity. A year after uh, a famous trial about the condom, that was the end of peak baby in Britain. It went down every year after then. Uh, later on, the pill in the 1960s helped a lot. But for decades, Europe had been slowing. Slowing so much in the 1930s that people were actually worried we'd run out of people by the year 2000. But the rest of the world was still growing, and that's why the Ehrlichs wrote uh, their population bomb book in 1968, just at the peak of, of, of global growth. But that slowed too, because the disruption, the, the, the worst of the disruption around the world was beginning to be abated. Countries were beginning to win their independence, not be colonies anymore, be able to be in charge of themselves, not be quite so exploited. Women were getting a lot more power. It wasn't obvious at first. You can only really see it in the statistics. It's a kind of, it's a million, a billion stories of quiet female empowerment in those numbers of babies being born. The average man on the planet uh, wants a family with half a baby more than the average woman. And so it was a fight by women uh, to reduce the numbers. And then, and most miraculously, in the last 10 years, the slowdown in babies has been fastest in those places which have the most babies. So countries are not waiting to copy what England and France did in the past. They're moving far more quickly from six children being average in a tiny number of places to, towards it being three for the generation beneath. Most of the planet, most people in the world now live in countries well below fertility replacement level. There's only about eight countries in the world which are fueling most of the population increase to come. It's an incredible uh, slowdown and the slowdown's been happening faster than we thought at the time when I wrote the book. I was using the 2017 and then 2019 UN numbers. Uh, the numbers which came out delayed by the pandemic in 2022 showed that it slowed down even faster than, than we thought and the pandemic also reduced how many children people have had. So this date for when we expect our total population to fall is coming nearer and nearer. And, and the other thing that's vitally important about all of this is that the main reason why the population on the planet is growing and why it has been growing for the last couple of decades is not births. Peak birth was around about 1990 with a little echo 20 odd years later. It's not births, it's people living longer. If life expectancy on the planet doubles, as it did over a century, then the same number of births ends up with twice as many people being around at any one time. So most of the population growth that got us from seven to eight billion and that will get us from eight to nine 
That is us not dying when our parents died, but living longer. And what does that look like as we take the longer view? Life expectancy, you know, the predictions that as societies we're going to have to care for more and more elderly people living even longer than they ever have. We are, but that is decelerating too, I'd say thankfully, and this is before the pandemic. So the increases in life expectancy are not going up and up and up. There's a limit to how long people on average will live. Uh, we're, we're a little bit, I like to think of us like washing machines. You know, there are various things that go wrong. That, that our heart is the motor. And if there's something wrong with the motor for washing machine, it won't last that long. But if you have a well-designed or looked after motor in the washing machine, eventually the plumbing's going to go wrong. And it won't last forever. And the number of things that can go wrong in the human body increases and increases with age. So we're not looking at ever-expanding life expectancy into, on average, our 90s or past a century, at least for most of the planet. Uh, that That is slowing down. And we're also looking, if, if in societies where we care for each other, the amount of time we spend in ill health needn't increase either. So a healthy 75-year-old um, today can have the health that a healthy 55-year-old had 30 or 40 years ago. So it'll be an older, greyer population. But at some point in this century, it'll be one that is much more balanced, where the number of children being born is the same as the number of people in very old age who are dying. And your population pyramid changes from being much less of a pyramid to looking much more like... A rectangle and we're heading towards that at different rates in the world this is really important so at one extreme in Korea it's been a quite a few years since they even had one baby per couple fertility is well below one now so the population of Korea is set to half every generation in other countries people are still having quite a few babies so if we don't have movement around the planet if we don't have migration that balances some of this out then we're going to have very lopsided inverted pyramids in some places very steep uh, convex pyramids in other places and migration is the only way in which that can be reduced if those countries that have had the fewest children accept more migrants from those countries which have had the most then our population deceleration also might be even faster because people tend, when they move from a country of high fertility to low fertility, to have fewer children themselves. We're talking about uh, these broad changes that you are arguing are decelerating and have been for approximately the, the last half century. I should say the program is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly and I'm speaking with geographer Danny Dorling about his book, Slow Down, The End of the Great Acceleration and Why It's Good for the Planet, the Economy and Our Lives. And that's published by Yale University Press. So you were discussing the slowdown in population growth. And you were also describing with the sort of rise of capitalism how people were thrown off the land as land was enclosed. And the, the result of that, in terms of migration to the cities, we're seeing a similar process happening in East Asia, in China, as people have left uh, the countryside and moved to the cities. And I wanted to ask you, how are those sort of changes that that take place, including the number of children that people have, uh, what relationship that has to capitalism and the dynamism or lack thereof of the capitalist system? Capitalism, right from its beginnings around about 1650, can only survive if every year your market gets larger than the market was the year before. It's, it's dangerous otherwise. You, ca you cannot constantly make a profit, let alone a growing profit, uh, if you don't have a growing market. Now, at first, the market grew because people were having more children. And so if you imagine you're selling shirts, the number of people who need shirts, shirts are going up each year. So even if you get competition as a whole, you're all playing in a casino where the odds are that you're going to win, the opposite to an actual casino where the odds are that you're going to lose a bit to the house. Um, 
And that's the casino of capitalism. It, it works because the odds are in the favour of business because the market's always growing. Now, when your own country isn't growing in population, that's not a problem because you can expand overseas. And if countries overseas are growing in population as well and you expand there, then you're doing very well. Uh, I often think that the story of Coca-Cola is a, is a story of kind of successful exporting of a sort of brown sticky liquid that people wouldn't necessarily want. But as long as there are enough children to begin to drink it, uh, then they will. But the problem for Coke comes, what happens when a number of children, as already has happened, begins to go down in the world? And even worse for them, what happens when people begin to say, actually, this stuff might not be that good for their teeth, even with the sugar removed. You know, why, why can't they just drink water, let alone begin to worry about the glass bottles and the rest of it? And so capitalism has this problem when population growth slows down, particularly young people who are easiest to advertise to and convince, particularly when we begin to worry about other things. Now, this affected Japan and China early on. Uh, China went from six children per woman to two under communism. It was a dramatic drop before the one-child policy. And then, of course, the one-child policy brings that down to just above one. And now uh, that that's been relaxed, it turns out that people have got used to having one and they can't get people to have, have two children. But, but something quite similar happened in Japan huge population after the devastating effects of world war ii in japan huge population growth lots and lots of babies but then it slowed right down so that tokyo now has one of the lowest rates Tokyo, a city of 30 million people has the fertility rate below 1.3 children per couple that's almost halving uh in a generation and so what japan originally had to do and then china much more recently is sell overseas but you can't all sell overseas to a, to a global market where the young, at least the young element of that market is getting smaller. And this is why I think there's a nail in the coffin, at least for capitalism as we've known it, that very crude 2% growth a year, 3% growth a year, live on profits, return a profit to your shareholders, then you can carry on existing. That model only works with an accelerating customer base and the customer base has been decelerating and is set to actually begin to fall within this century and the number of younger people, the number of children, the number of babies, the number of 18 year olds are going to fall much, much earlier than that. Well, what about something you write about in your book, Slow Down, the relentless drive within capitalism to convince people, uh, even a, a fewer number of people that they need to buy more per person yeah well you have to try harder and harder um so when capitalism began we didn't do much advertising at all uh it's remarkable how advertising free the world was for the first kind of century or so of advertising and then you see very small amounts of it um you know just hoardings just describing your goods uh, newspapers uh, the, the local newspaper is a relatively modern invention. Soap operas are called soap operas, operas on TV because they were invented to try to get you to watch something continuously because of the adverts for detergent soap that was going to be placed in between the episodes of the soap opera. Uh, and then we get the whole science of advertising and now we have uh, advertising in terms of targeted advertising on social media really trying to get you to buy more things that you really don't need they wouldn't have to advertise it if you needed it but we're becoming cannier we're becoming cleverer uh, about this we're becoming harder to crack uh, we're we're now educating uh, people i think a third of the planet's children now go to university something quite ridiculous well not ridiculous good but um you know we'd have to be doing a very bad job in our universities if that set of young people were going to carry on going, oh, I must have those trainers because they've got that particular little logo on them and that makes me special. You know, that, this is why I, I know I'm optimistic about this, but I've got some sort of faith in human nature. And also by stepping back and looking at this as a process that's occurred over decades, you can see how we were easier to dupe at first, but how it becomes harder to do it and how... If a company produces something where they say it's going to cost you twice as much, 
but it might last you for the rest of your life. We've sourced it fairly ethically, it's beautifully made and, it, and it'll be good for you to buy. At some point in the future people may say actually I'll buy that rather than the one I'm just going to throw away every year. Um, and again that would of course hasten the demise of the current model of capitalism. Uh, because that company may be able to survive if it does this, but it's not going to make enormous profits. But it might do better than the company that's still trying to do it the old way. Well, let's talk about the heart of capitalism, which is growth. Now, obviously, capitalism by its very nature is very uneven and very geographically uneven. But what can we say about the rate of growth of economies over the last half century this is one of the most interesting uh things and the, the problem with and this is, i'm just using conventional gdp not, not arguing about that at all which we only really began to calculate in the modern way at the start of the 1950s the difficulty with it is that you get these particular years which spike uh, so you might get GDP falling in the 1970s with the oil crisis or falling in the, in the early 1980s with the recession then or falling with the dot-com bust in the 1990s or falling with the financial crisis in 2008 or falling with the pandemic in 2020. And we tend to be obsessed by those annual falls and the rises in between them and particular spikes. If you step back and simply work out an average over every 10 years, what you see is that the rate of growth is always less than it was the 10 years before, uh, even in places like China, which I think just before the pandemic still had 6% growth, which was incredibly low for China, the lowest it had ever, ever had, well, not ever had since, since uh, the destruction caused by the opium wars. So the rates of growth... GDP per capita growth are going down and down and down relentlessly. But we don't tend to see it because there's always a issue such as the pandemic or we say there's a particular problem such as productivity. But we could, you know, if we only we do this, we could increase our productivity and get our growth back. And we just don't look at this long series since the 50s onwards. And I think that's partly because we invented the modern discipline of economics in the 1930s, 40s and 50s, uh, which was all based on the idea that growth is good, growth will work, these are systems, you can model them. Um, and economics wasn't set up to look at what might be wrong with its assumptions. It was set up assuming that this was the way the world worked, it balanced supply and demand, and you simply had to understand it, and the better you understood it, the better you might be able to influence it, and not see it as something where we set up models of it, of something which was actually beginning to decline, even at the point where we first thought we understood it. You mentioned that in the US and the UK, inequality has grown to sort of unprecedented levels. But stepping back and looking globally, what do we see with the rate of inequality, uh, distinguishing between wealth inequality and income inequality? Income inequality first, globally between all people on the world, there's been a reduction since the 1960s and 70s in income inequality. And a lot of that's due to the rise of China, incredible rise of China. Um, but it's not just due to China. At the very bottom, the poorest half a billion people edging on a billion are still extremely poor, but not doing quite as badly as their parents or grandparents were. And we can see the effect of that, for instance, in fewer people dying now in floods and droughts than were dying 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Partly because you get warning of a flood, but also somebody's got a telephone to get that warning. And then at the other extreme, at the very top, we are getting this increasing number of billionaires, and it is worrying. But it's only the billionaires and the multimillionaires. Uh, the top 10% is no longer necessarily getting richer and richer, and they're complaining about it enormously. Uh, the top 10%, well, I'm in the top 10%, it's university professors, it's doctors and so on. And they're seeing their incomes no longer rise at a rate they used to, particularly during this current cost of living crisis, which is most interesting. 
where we're seeing people go on strike and incomes at the bottom are rising. But there's not much sympathy for well-paid people to say, look, I really must have my income going up by inflation because I need to go on a holiday this winter. It doesn't, it doesn't work in a cost of living crisis. So things are changing. Now, within countries, uh, some of the most equal countries in the world are the Nordic countries, Finland, Sweden, Norway. But if you look across the whole of the OECD, and I checked that this today, so this is as of today, uh, in, in all, I think it is 44 countries that the OECD produces income inequality data for. In every single country, the most recent Gini coefficient of income inequality is lower than the maximum in the last 20 years. And in some cases, it's been coming down for many years, 15 years. In some cases, only coming down for two or three years. But not a single OECD country, oh, according to the OECD stats, has an income inequality now, which is the highest ever. The one possible exception is that the number for India is out of date on the OECD database. And if you look at India on other data, you do find it's got even worse and a terrible position. But in general, most countries in the world now have falling income inequality now wealth inequality very different uh, wealth inequality when it rose it rose after income inequality first began to rose because when you have an increase in income inequality the people with higher income can save more of it and those savings grow and they become richer they can buy houses and the price of houses grows if you have an unequal country very recently with the cost of living crisis Inflation, which in this country, I'm, I'm speaking to you from England, our inflation is well over 10% at the moment, that destroys 10% of wealth in one year. We currently have falling house prices, so they're not going up by inflation, that destroys wealth. Private pensions, our state pension, which is our guaranteed pension, which is really mainly for people who are very poor, although everybody gets it, almost everybody, the state pension the government are going to increase it by inflation so it stays the same. But the private pensions can no longer afford to keep their private pensions going up as much. So there's private pensioners, which tends to be the better off members of society, by their wealth, because the pension is a wealth until you use it, by their wealth we're just beginning to see a turn now. Now you have to be incredibly optimistic about this to think this could be it, but it it's interesting and it's, it's things we haven't been able to say for many decades. Wealth inequality is far worse than income inequality, but it isn't necessarily here forever with us. Well, I'd like to ask you about periods of time. Um, obviously, there's the danger of getting too close to things and, you know, extrapolating from them. And so you're taking the longer view. But, you know, when we look at these economic changes, how much would you attribute to shifts in the way capitalism has been organized. You know, much has been written on the left about the period, whether you want to call it Fordism or the Keynesian social democracies that came to an end, um, started to sort of fray a little bit after some of the turning points that you're pointing to. But let's say, you know, in the 1970s, um, certainly the rise of Thatcher, and then the advent of neoliberalism, which intensified inequality in the US and the UK. And while it's the rates of economic growth are argued about, certainly has introduced a great deal more volatility and financial crises in that period since the early 1970s to the present. Oh yeah, I'm not saying that things have got better every decade. Uh, and those huge rises, particularly in the UK and USA, were absolutely terrible in their effect and the effects on, on societies uh, that they had. And similarly, if we see now uh, inflation eating away wealth and also everybody becoming poorer, but the rich seeing their incomes falling more than the poor, nobody's going to be happy in the short term. Uh, just as they weren't happy in the 1920s or 1930s when inequality last fell and fell partly with things like Fordism creating what were initially well-paid jobs in factories and the unions, of course. Without the unions, they wouldn't have been well-paid jobs. Um, so you have these periods when things change and they don't get better or you don't realise that something fundamental is, is getting better. And that certainly happened with inequality 
even in the most equal countries, they had a rise in inequality after the 1970s, just nothing like our rise, and they fought to reverse it. The other important thing to say is, clearly, there's an enormous amount of human agency involved in all of this. So the Nordic countries are not different for some kind of natural reason to do with a moss in Norway. It's literally people struggling in those countries, um, particularly the country I've looked at in most detail is Finland, struggling right from the terror in 1918, terrible civil war, which the left, the Reds, lost, but carrying on uh, struggles and winning those struggles. And the same in the USA and the UK, it was the right wing winning their struggles. Reagan won a struggle, Thatcher won a struggle. Uh, it was a struggle to overcome the unions, it was a struggle to put people in their place, it was a struggle to increase inequality because they thought it was good and they won it. So these trends are not about kind of inevitabilities. Uh, there's enough human agency and, you know, in a way sort of tritely, 8 billion isn't that many people. A few people can, can have uh, enormous effects. You, you know, if you're worrying about the future, you just have to think about the fear of nuclear war. There aren't that many people involved in stopping one or in starting one. Uh, if you're looking at these economic changes, uh, then the rising position of women, women demanding to be paid the same as men, women demanding the right to work, that increases your equality in the workforce. But it isn't often noticed that that is one of the things which has happened over this period and may have made a difference. But what we're seeing now, uh, Ipsos Mori, the big global survey firm, did a survey earlier this year about what concerns the world the most. And the first concern was cost of living crisis and inflation. 32% of everybody said that was on the top three. But the second concern in the world, and this has been going on for some time now, was poverty and inequality being the biggest thing that people in the world worried about. The third was unemployment, which is closely linked to those first two, to cost of living crisis, because firms shed jobs when, when there's a cost of living crisis and you fear unemployment because you fear poverty. The pandemic was way down in eighth. Climate change was 11th. You know, the major fear of the majority of people in the world is cost of living, inequality, poverty and unemployment. And that partly reflects a growth in the understanding that these things really matter and we can do something about them. We don't have to suffer in silence from what the economy throws at us. We can argue and arrange our economy so that nobody is that badly off and also nobody is taking far too much more than their fair share. There's so many different threads that you're arguing have changed over a period of time and you know to what degree does collective action play a role in those shifts? I should say I'm speaking with Danny Dorling, he's professor of geography at Oxford and we're discussing slowdown, the end of the great acceleration and why it's good for the planet, the economy and our lives. But Danny, you mentioned that lowdown on the list of people's greatest concerns and worries is one that actually is is very real and is not declining, and that's global temperature. Can you talk about the exception of the climate crisis, which undoubtedly is one aspect of people thinking the world is headed in a terrible direction? Yes. When I started writing this book slow down it wasn't called slow down it was going to be a book about what things are going faster and what things are going slower uh, but the shock was finding that only four things were actually accelerating uh, one of the accelerations was temperature it wasn't simply that temperature was going up but the rate at which it was going up it's now past one one degree c above normal uh, the rate was going up slightly faster each year than the year before with enormous annual variation, which is part of the reason we used to get climate deniers, because it, it used to not be quite so obvious as it became obvious in the last 10, 15 years. So temperature is certainly rising and maybe rising in a way that's slightly accelerating, which is very frightening. Uh, the second one was the amount of carbon, much more steady, much easier to measure, measure it just off Hawaii um, or from a volcano on top of Hawaii. But the amount of carbon was not just increasing in the atmosphere, it was accelerating slightly. Uh, and then the third one was the number of flights that, that were being taken, not that people were taking, most people on Earth never fly and never will fly. Uh, 
uh, but the number of planes, the number of, in the air was going up and up and up until the pandemic. And then the fourth one was the number of young people going to university. And at least with that one, you knew, well, it's not going to carry on going up forever because you get to 100%, so it can't. But the first three of them were clearly linked to climate change. And it's remarkable that so much else has decelerated, including population, but we still managed to accelerate this. And we know we do this. We know it, that the, the, the most profligate 1% of people on the planet are emitting twice the carbon of the bottom half of the population of the planet. It's, it's all about inequality. And the increase in carbon emissions has been largely among the top 10% and the top 1%. And so that's what you need to control to slow down most of the rise in the immediate years uh, to come. And the pandemic did a good job, at least, of uh, grounding all those aircraft for a little bit. Uh, and you also see governments doing a good job. I think it's France has just banned all internal air flights. we yet to hear whether they're going to ban the private planes as well. Uh, Germany, very similar. In Germany now, uh, for €9, Euros, that's not much more than $10, you can travel wherever you want, however much you want, by rail for a month within the country. Nobody flies. Uh, similar scheme, I think actually it's free in Italy, free rail travel to Christmas. Similar in Spain, all across all across these more progressive European countries. Uh, partly because, of course, the cost of fuel and, and people can't afford the gas for their cars. Uh, but there is there are attempts to try to stop people flying and stop them polluting as much, uh, of which by far the most effective is to stop people being able to fly their private planes wherever they feel like it. So in terms of pulling this all together and thinking about how we got here and where we're going, you write that we should think of capitalism not as a mode of production, but as an unstable transition to something else. But you're also arguing that while capitalism has had you know, a relatively short life, it was more dynamic in earlier times, and we're seeing sort of the ebbing of that. All of these different things that you're describing, population, growth, these things are slowing down often for particular reasons that one might be able to describe in isolation from other things. I wonder if you can tell us how these different slowdowns are connected to each other and why. I think they're connected because the initial shock of the bomb of capitalism going off is now waning. If you think of capitalism as a kind of mushroom cloud that began around 1650 on that dockside in Amsterdam and in kind of slow motion over the decades, 1660, 1670, 1680, the mushroom cloud moves out around the world. You see slave ships being sent uh, by the Royal Company in England to the coast of Africa to get the labour that are needed for the plantations that have, have been uh, built. Because of the money to be invested, because of the money that was made in Europe. You sort of you see that, if you like, the wave of the bomb moving out across and the enormous disruption it caused. And of course capitalism changed and changed and changed again in its nature invented central banks all kinds of things had had to happen to keep it going it wasn't the same in 1650 as 1750 as 1850 as 1950 it was a very different thing what we're now seeing is no new explosion a continuation of trying to do what we've done before huge monopolies uh, if you look at the biggest hundred companies now hardly any of them were in existence a hundred years ago uh, the biggest companies in the US are often tech companies, uh, which weren't even in existence 30 years ago. And, and they, they only work through monopoly power. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Netflix, all that kind of thing. It, it's The whole idea is as long as you've got control and other people can't produce an alternative, you can rake in the money. But it's a kind of it's a kind of coming to an end. It's 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 the very opposite of the beginnings of capitalism. 
where you invent some kind of steam engine that can go twice as fast as the previous steam engine and you beat your competitor down the road. I think we're, we're at an ending of it. Now, it seems a long time to us because we tended for most of this time to only live for 60, 70 or at most 80 years. And we see our lives as very long. But if you don't see your life as very long, if you just look at this in terms of a species, then it's only about six generations that this change has occurred over. And six generations where from when people were born to when they died, the world was unearthed and changed completely as far as they're concerned. If you go back seven or eight generations, and if you go back in poorer families, just three or four, you find that the world was very repetitive. People did what their parents did. They farmed where their parents farmed. They lived where their parents did. It was monotonous, not that exciting, but it was stable. And the question is now, as the number of children no longer increases, as the populations of our countries don't increase, are we going to begin to get into routines where what we do is we care for each other, we teach, we nurture, we shelter, we produce some stuff but we don't have to produce that much because we have robots that can do that. Um, and more and more of us do what our parents did rather than the situation that we've had for six generations of us doing utterly different things, which is not the revolution that many people wished for at the height of the acceleration you know they wanted people to get the pitchforks out and overturn it all it's being overturned in, in a very different way but it but there are people who really really don't want that to happen and then don't like ideas like this and want to say it's complete rubbish uh you know we'll carry on expanding what we need to do is get off this planet and start colonizing others we need to we need to do that you know there's, there's a, a group who argued a complete opposite to what i'm arguing Danny Rowling, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. I've been speaking with Danny Dorling about his book, Slow Down, The End of the Great Acceleration and Why It's Good for the Planet, the Economy, and Our Lives. You can find a link to that book at againstthegrain.org. It's published by Yale University Press. Danny Dorling is the Halford McKinder Professor of Geography at the University of Oxford, and his many books include Inequality in the 1%, and the equality effect. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time.